Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, will help thee, yea, will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Um, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. The word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to have a few moments of silent prayer. We always take time to confess any sins to God the Father in the privacy of silent prayer, uh, if necessary. Scripture teaches us that whenever we sin, we are instantly out of fellowship. We grieve the Spirit, quench the Spirit, and for that time period, any spiritual growth is uh, squelched. It is only when we confess our sins that we recover fellowship, recover the filling of the Holy Spirit so that we can uh, move forward spiritually. So we have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege and opportunity we have to gather together to study your word. We thank you that we live in a nation where we have these freedoms. We live in a nation that, for the time being, has these freedoms under threat of attack due to this war on terrorism and potential war against Iraq. Father, we pray for our president. We pray for our military leaders, our political leaders, that, that they may have wisdom, that they might set aside their Uh, political differences, their uh, petty philosophical um, disagreements that they might be able to focus on what needs to be done in order to bring security to this nation through military victory. Freedom has always been secured and preserved through military victory, and it is times of, of threat that so often those who do not understand this principle, those who are at heart cowards, those who do not have a divine viewpoint in history, often um, are afraid to do what needs to be done in order to provide protection. Father, we pray that you would give our leaders the wisdom they need to, de- to determine whether or not it is uh, truly necessary for the security of this nation to uh, engage a war with Iraq. We pray that if they do, that they might uh, be victorious, that you would cause our enemies to be weak, to fail, to make mistakes, And, Father, we pray that we might be able to take advantage of them. We pray for those in this congregation who are already uh, in the uh, area of the Middle East. We pray for those who are going, others who have been called up to serve during this time for their families. We pray that you would uh, give them the tremendous opportunity at this time to trust you, to utilize the stress busters, to utilize the problem-solving devices your word has given us, 
that they might uh, grow and use this as an opportunity to accelerate their spiritual growth. Father, we pray for us as we study your word that we might be challenged today, especially as we focus on this important topic of rewards and crowns and the motivation that that is to give us to be disciplined, to be focused, to maintain our priorities in your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Our passage this morning is in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. This is a rather well-known passage in Paul that is built off of the analogy of the Olympic Games and the uh, running, uh, the track events that occurred in the various uh, games that occurred in Greece. There were four well-known games. There were those that occurred at Olympus. There were those that occurred at Nemea. And Pythia, which was across the isthmus from uh, to the north from Corinth, and those that occurred at the isthmus just north of of Corinth. These four games were well known. The Isthmian Games were held uh, just seven miles from Corinth at the sanctuary of Poseidon. They were held every two years, so it is more than likely, it is very possible that it. 51 A.D., when Paul was in Corinth, that he witnessed the games. In fact, it is more than likely, considering his evangelistic zeal, that he saw that as, a, as an event that he would use in order to not only develop his own, uh, own tent-making industry, which I pointed out last time was something that was not uh, endemic to Greece, that it was not an, an industry that was found in Greece, so it was something that was needed. They had to build tents for the athletes, tents for those who were visiting. They had to build tents for all of those who were, all the tradesmen who were selling their wares at the games. And this was something that Paul would have taken advantage of and used that as an opportunity to spread the gospel, as an opportunity to witness much as different uh, evangelistic groups do today when you have various events that go on. I remember when when uh, I was a student at Dallas Seminary, we would go to the Texas State Fair every year, and the seminary always had a booth down there, and there were always a number of men that would sign up, and they would use that as an opportunity to uh, talk to people and to witness, as did other groups. I remember there was one group there who had a large booth that was kind of a in our view, a heretical group because they believe that baptism saves you. And it was always fun for the seminary guys to go over and engage them in conversation and to try to show them the error of their ways. But these opportunities or these events have always been viewed by believers as opportunities to engage in evangelism, and that was true for the Apostle Paul as well. But he drew from the games... He drew from the games an analogy for the spiritual life, and it's an analogy that strikes at the heart of, of our motivation for the spiritual life. I think sometimes there are some believers who get this uh, sort of idealistic view that we should be motivated simply because we want to glorify God, and that's true. But the Scriptures say there that there's a number of different things that do motivate us. One is fear of the Lord, not just a fear in terms of respect, but the Gospels mention uh, 
And Paul mentions a terror of the Lord, as a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, a realization that we may experience shame at the judgment seat of Christ. That's how John puts it, that even though we are saved by grace and we will have eternity in heaven and we will not we have no fear of eternal condemnation nevertheless we should be motivated by the fact that we do not want to stand uh, naked as it were ashamed at the judgment seat of Christ with no rewards and having a life that did not count uh, for eternity so we're motivated by fear. We're motivated by a desire, of course, to glorify God. We're motivated by our love for the Lord. But we are also motivated by, by rewards, not in a self-centered way, because if you understand the concept correctly, it is in the eternal state, as we will see, or when we're in heaven, that continuously when we come before the Lord, we will lay our crowns, lay our rewards before him in worship because he is the one through whom and for whom all of this was accomplished under the power of God the Holy Spirit. But we wish to hear our Lord say to us when we arrive in heaven, Well done, O good and faithful servant. So this is all part of the concept of rewards. And Paul uses the rewards, the awards, and the prizes offered in the Isthmian Games as a background for understanding or for encouraging believers to run the race, encouraging the Corinthians not to maintain their status as as failures in the spiritual life, but to uh, press on to being a winner in the spiritual life and winning the prize. In 1 Corinthians 9.24, 9.24, he says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? So he uses the race as an analogy. He asks a rhetorical question, assuming they know the answer, that even though in a race there may be 20 or 30 different contestants, only one wins the prize. You can't press the analogy so far that only one Christian wins the prize. The point is that that all believers can run, and every believer can win the prize. And so he gives them a command, run in such a way, and this is a present active, a present active imperative, which indicates that this is to be a priority, this is to be the standard operating procedure in the believer's life, that this is con- to continuously characterize the believer. That's the thrust of a present imperative. It is to continuously characterize your life. It is to be a priority. You are to focus on it. You are to concentrate on it. If we go to the, to the athlete analogy of the day, what they, the athletes would set aside 10 months for training. And they had to go through a rigorous training procedure. If they violated the diet once, they were out. If they violated the discipline schedule, the workout schedule, once they were out. Every morning they were awakened with a trumpet, and they had to get up, and they uh, ate their breakfast, and then they would warm up, and then they would go through their workout regimen for the day. One mistake, and they were out. So this was something that they had to focus on. They had to concentrate on. They had to make it a priority. They had to be willing to set aside many good and wonderful things in life in order to gain the prize. See, this is the biggest problem with most Christians is not that we are distracted necessarily by sin, although that certainly is a problem, 
we are distracted by things that aren't sinful. We are distracted by things that are fine and good in and of themselves, but they get in the way of our pursuit of our spiritual of our spiritual growth. Recently I saw the movie Gods and Generals and I've gone back and I've reread some things about Stonewall Jackson about 70% of the movie focuses on the life of uh, Thomas Jonathan Jackson, who was uh, Lee's right arm through the first part of the war between the states. And Jackson was a man who came to the Lord when he was in his uh, adolescent years, but he was a man who was uh, extremely focused in whatever it was that he did in life. That was that was his nature when he entered into the uh, military academy at West Point, uh, the first year he was at the bottom of his class. When he graduated, he graduated 17th out of a class of 59. And one of his classmates remarked that if they had had another year, he would have graduated at the top of his class. That was the kind of perseverance that he had. He saw the goal. He was willing to do whatever it took to reach the goal, and he worked hard. He worked diligently to achieve that. Well, he had that same mentality when it came to his spiritual life. It's a mentality that sometimes we think of as maybe a little too obsessive. Sometimes people think of it as legalistic, but that would be a wrong characterization for someone like Jackson. Jackson would wake up in the morning and he would think first and foremost, what must I do today or avoid today in order that my soul honor God at its, at its highest? That was his priority. He thought that every decision he made during the day he would weigh and evaluate in light of that decision. He was, some might say, a perfectionist when he taught in the classroom the last 10 years uh, from, I believe it was from 1851 to 1861. He taught at the Virginia Military Institute, and his students did not appreciate the fact that he was a hard taskmaster. This wasn't just something he, you know, this, this attitude of achieving your very best wasn't just something that he had in his own life, but something he tried to impress upon his students. And we should be impressed with that as believers, that everything we do should be to the glory of God. Everything that we, should, we do should be to the very best of our ability. And we should try to, uh, to achieve excellence in everything that we do. This is what the attitude that undergirds Paul's discussion here. In the spiritual life, we have to reach a point where we're going to decide whether or not we are serious about living our spiritual life. Someday that may dawn on some of you, if it hasn't dawned on you already, that you that when you die, the only thing that's going to matter in life is what you did in relationship to Bible doctrine and its application in life. Uh, it's not going to matter what you did in terms of your career. It's not going to matter what you did in terms of achieving uh, uh, any level of success in terms of either your vocation or avocation. Uh, academic success uh, is not going to matter. What's, uh, it's not going to matter what kind of uh, pleasure you enjoyed, how, how well you developed your understanding of, of your personal interests and hobbies. None of those things are going to matter. What's going to matter is how much time you spent in fellowship with the Lord and how far you advanced in your spiritual life through the application of doctrine. But you can't apply what you don't know, and you can't learn it 
You can't get it deep into your soul until you spend a maximum amount of time studying it, hearing it over and over and over again, constantly being reminded of what the eternal values are, what the procedures are in the spiritual life, what the mechanics are in the spiritual life, learning to think biblically, learning to look at each and every event in life as God looks at it, learning to discipline yourself to think Okay, how would how does the Lord look at this? What does the Scripture teach me about this particular dimension of life, whether it's how you handle your money, how you raise your kids, how you relate to your spouse, how you relate to your employer, uh, how, do you re- how you relate to your employees? The spiritual life and Bible doctrine relates to every single dimension of life. Whatever it is, we go through life and we face various people tests because of those around us. And we have to apply impersonal love to those people tests. And we have to learn that that is what comes as you, you pursue uh, spiritual life and spiritual maturity. You deal with impersonal love, person, or personal love for God, impersonal love, and occupation with Christ in terms of the love triplex that we have studied. That takes discipline. And this is the key to understanding this passage is that Paul is emphasizing self-discipline and self-mastery toward a particular goal. But what has to happen first and foremost is you have to make a decision that that's going to be your goal. And it's not a one-shot decision. This is a problem in so many Christian circles is they think that this is some one-shot decision and they have special revival meeting and they have people raise their hand, walk the aisle, make a commitment to Christ and all the other things. But this is a moment-by-moment decision that we, at some point, you will reach it, reach a point in your Christian life where you realize this has to be a priority. But just because you reach that point and make that decision one day doesn't mean that you will carry it out an hour later, two hours later, two weeks later, two months later, two years later. Once you reach that point, then you have to, in your own mind, uh, carry out that decision, continue to persevere with that decision day in and day out, and some days you'll fail, some days you'll forget about it, some days it, it won't matter, but as you grow and mature, hopefully uh, consistency will develop. And this is the same way it is with an athlete. If an athlete is going to be successful, you watch those who are training for Olympic events. You watch those who are uh, in high school training to excel in their particular sports so that they might gain a scholarship to go to uh, uh, college or university on an athletic scholarship. And then some in in college and university want to go on beyond that into professional sports. They have to lay aside many good and pleasurable uh, activities in life that other students participate in so that they can achieve their goal. They have to get up early in the morning in order to have that time to work out, that time to uh, train in their particular discipline. They have to give up a lot of recreational activities that, that are fine and good. But they understand what the goal is, and that's the point in the Christian life, is that we have to recognize what the goal is. And the more you mature in the spiritual life, and the more we grow up, the more we recognize that there are many things in life that we did when we were younger that we don't have time to do anymore because, in effect, they become a distraction to us in our spiritual life and our spiritual spiritual growth. And we have to become single-minded in our approach to the spiritual life. 
So Paul says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the the prize? Therefore, it's a conclusion, this imperative, even though he doesn't say that, it is implied. Run in such a way in order that you may receive it. Run in such a way that you may receive the prize. So this is to motivate the believer. He is to live his life in such a way that he may receive the prize. Verse 21, he goes on and makes a universal statement. He says, anyone or all, actually literally it says all who compete, are temperate in all things. Temperate is how the New King James Version translates uh, translates the word, but actually the word is the word means to be self-disciplined. It is the Greek word enkratuo, enkratuo, and we'll put it up here on the on the overhead. It's an epsilon gamma at the beginning, which is when you have a gamma kappa together, it always is pronounced like an ng. So it's transliterated E-N-G-R-A-T-E-U-O. Incratuo. E-N-K-R-A-T-E-U-O, E-N-K, incratuo, and this is the idea of self-discipline, to be self-controlled, to exhibit self-government and self-mastery. This is someone who is able to master their sin nature, master their lust pattern. This is someone who is able to subordinate personal desires and personal inclinations for a higher goal. This is a sign of maturity. It is a production of God the Holy Spirit. He produces, as part of the fruit of the Spirit, self-discipline or self-mastery. This is not something that just comes along simply because you're able to force yourself into some sort of behavior pattern. Now, there are people who can do that. There are people who are very rigid, very obsessive, and through just sheer will and sheer determination, they uh, force themselves into a particular uh, lifestyle or habit pattern. But if you do it in the flesh, sooner or later something's going to come crashing down. This is not a production of simple, uh, simple self-discipline that, is, that anyone can engage in. This is a fruit of the Spirit that comes as a result of spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. Maturity, it has often been said, is, is the ability to postpone gratification. It is the ability to put off today what is more important in order to achieve what is more important and will have a longer impact for tomorrow. This is really what comes in in spiritual adolescence, what we have called the personal sense of our eternal destiny. When we begin to realize that every decision that we make today impacts eternity. It's not just about today. It's not just about tomorrow. It's not just about making it through the week. It is about how this affects our own character, our own spiritual growth, our own spiritual maturity in terms of uh, having an eternal, uh, eternal impact and in terms of producing uh, someone who has the capacity to rule and reign with Jesus Christ in the millennial kingdom and in eternity. So 1 Corinthians 9.25 says, Everyone who competes is, has self-mastery. 
and the one who competes, this is the Greek participle, agonizamenos, which is uh, from the verb agonizo, and this means to be disciplined, to agonize. And it implies uh, just what it does in English, that this is not something that's going to come easily. This is not something that is going to come, and you're going to think, oh, this is just so natural. I think some people get the wrong idea when you talk about the filling of the Spirit, that when, you're, when you confess your sins and you're filled with the Spirit, and the Spirit is going to give you the ability to grow and the power to overcome sin, that somehow this means that you're not going to be tempted, that it's, not, that it's going to somehow just come naturally. But the Holy Spirit does not override your volition. The Holy Spirit does not override the sin nature. Your sin nature is just as powerful, just as, uh, just as strong, able to tempt you in all those areas of weakness where you easily succumb as it did before you were saved. What happens now is that you have the Holy Spirit who makes the issues clear to you, and you still have to make those decisions to not follow the lust of the flesh, make the positive decision to walk according to the Holy Spirit, walk by means of the Holy Spirit. And this is not difficult, and this comes under the category sometimes of almost agony in order to discipline ourselves to apply doctrine and to do that which we know is right and not what our body, not what our sin nature uh, tells us is the natural inclination, the thing that would give us immediate pleasure and immediate gratification. So Paul says, all those who agonize, all those who are under the strict uh, athletic discipline in the race, uh, master themselves. They are temperate. They are disciplined in all things. And then he says, now they do it to obtain a perishable crown. So he uses the analogy of the athletes as any successful athlete masters himself. And he does all this. He goes through the ten months of training. He limits his diet to eating cheese and and figs and a few other things that were part of their diet. Uh, He does all of those things simply for this prize of the withered celery wreath. We saw last time that each of the uh, each of the different uh, uh, games, whether it was in Olympia, whether it was in Numea, each of these games had different different wreaths. They had the wild olive wreath at Olympia. Uh, they had a wild celery wreath at Numea. They had a laurel wreath at Delphi at the uh, Pythian Games at Delphi, and they had this withered celery wreath at uh, Isthmia. And so Paul looks at that and says, they're going to go through ten months of agony, ten months of rigorous discipline and training, simply for this prize of a withered celery wreath. See, if they do this for a perishable crown, and he uses the word tharton, a perishable crown, how much more should we do for an imperishable crown? Look at that analogy. If they're willing to discipline themselves, give up so much, and to impose this this uh, regimen on themselves in order to achieve simply this temporal crown, how much more would we? Uh, how much more should we do this for an imperishable crown? And the word that he uses here for uh, crown 
is the word Stephanos. Stephanos. And there are, this introduces us to the doctrine of crowns, and there are two different crowns in the scriptures. There is the Stephanos crown, which is the victor's crown, the crown that is given as, a, as an award for successful achievement. Uh, for example, as an athlete for victory in the Olympic Games, uh, it would also be applied to certain uh, awards and decorations in, in the military for bravery in combat. And at times it would be given as an award to someone who had achieved a certain level of, uh, of standing in the civic community because of what he had done for the society. So Paul then says, let's go on and look at the rest of the passage before we get into the doctrine of crowns. He says, therefore, because they do all of this, they're willing to give up all of this for this, imperish, uh, for this perishable crown. Therefore, I run in this manner. I run thus, running here as a metaphor for the spiritual life. I run thus, not with uncertainty. And he says, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. Two of the main events in the Olympic Games were boxing and running. So he uses both as an analogy. He's not going to be... He's not going to run with uncertainty. He's going to have a specific track laid out in front of him and run that track. That is the uh, spiritual life, the all of the protocols of the spiritual life. He says, Thus I fight not as one who beats the air, not as one who simply flails in the air. We'll come back and look at what that means specifically as we go through the doctrine of crowns. In contrast to the one who is uncertain, and the one who simply flails their arm in sort of a shadow boxing, never actually connecting with his opponent, never winning the round. He says, in contrast to that, I discipline my body. I discipline my body, the uh, King James, or New King James says. Actually, the word is the Greek word hupo piazzo. Hupo piazzo, and that looks like this in the Greek. Rough breathing mark, H-U-P-O-P-I-A-Z-O. Hupo piazzo. Literally, it means to strike under the eye or the part of the face below the eye, from hupa meaning under and ops meaning eye. So it has the basic idea of beating the face black and blue, giving somebody a black eye, and it's used in this passage in a figurative or uh, way or a metaphoric way and is translated uh, just beating my body. And it is, does not mean that he literally beats his body, but this is simply the idea that he is going to discipline himself in order to achieve the goal. He is going to bring his body under submission. He is not going to just do whatever his sin nature wants him to do. He's not just going to follow every desire that he has. He is going to bring himself under a uh, specific code of conduct and discipline himself to maintain that code of conduct for the spiritual life. Lest, he says, when I have preached to others, that is, when I have carried out my apostolic ministry, and we have seen uh, this term used through, or these terms used throughout this chapter that Paul is talking about his entire apostolic ministry when he talks about preaching the gospel. He says, Lest when I have preached to others, 
I myself should become disqualified. And here he uses the the Greek word adokimas. Now remember this word dokimas and its verb dokimazo is a key word in understanding judgment and the judgment seat of Christ where we are evaluated. And the term for evaluation is dokimazo. That's the verb form to be evaluated. And so the person who failed in their evaluation, the person who did not uh, compete according to the rules, the person who violated the diet, the person who wanted to sleep late one Saturday morning rather than, than get up and go through his, his workout routine, this person had one chance. If he blew it once, he was out. He was adokimas. He was unapproved, unworthy. It doesn't mean, excuse me, it doesn't mean that salvation is lost. It simply means that rewards are lost. Eternal value, the eternal consequences of this, all this work could be, could be technically lost, Paul says, if I fail. He could go for 10, 15, 20 years living and growing to spiritual maturity, and then when he reached 50 or 60 years of age, all of a sudden think, oh, I've made it, I have mastered the spiritual life, get involved in other things in life that become a distraction to his spiritual growth. And the next thing you know, he's out of fellowship, he's in carnality, he's disqualified, and he can lose that which he has already gained. He can lose rewards. These are blessings that God has set aside for us from the moment we were saved, and I call them contingency blessings. We'll get into this in the second hour in our study of the evaluation judgment. These are contingency blessings. There are blessings that God is going to give us at the instant of salvation related to salvation. There are other blessings God is going to give us related to logistical grace and life support blessings. And then there are other blessings that God is not going to distribute unless we demonstrate the capacity to enjoy those blessings through spiritual growth. If we do not grow spiritually in time, then those blessings will not be distributed. If we do not grow to maturity, then at the judgment seat of Christ we will not receive those eternal blessings. So there are contingency blessings for time and contingency blessings for eternity. And at any point before death, we can, we can begin to fail in the Christian life. We can go into carnality. We can go into reversionism. And we can uh, destroy everything that we have uh, worked for, everything that we have earned. This is the warning that we'll see in our study of Second uh, John 8 today is that we can lose everything that we have gained in the spiritual life simply because of a failure to persevere. That's the true biblical doctrine of perseverance. It is not the Calvinistic doctrine that if you're a true believer, you will persevere, and if you don't persevere, you weren't truly saved. That is heresy, and that is uh, related to ultimately a backdoor works salvation. This is the true doctrine of perseverance, that if you persevere in the spiritual life, there will be rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. If you fail to persevere, then there will be a loss of reward. So there are those who will be successful, and they will be winners at the Bema seat. They will be winners when Jesus Christ distributes rewards, and there are those who will lose rewards, and they will be disqualified, and they will be uh, losers at the judgment seat of Christ.
Okay, let's get into the doctrine of crowns. First point, there are two types of crowns in the New Testament. The first point, the first crown is called a Stephanos crown, where we get the name Stephen. It is a victor's crown. This is different from the second crown, which is the second point, the diadema. So this is the crown related to uh, victory. This is a crown that is earned, and only believers receive this Stephanos crown. S-T-E-P-H-A-N-O-S. It is a crown that is given, that was given in the ancient world as an award for successful achievement in the games, in combat, or in civic duty. It was a term that was used to describe the crown of thorns that was placed on Jesus' head, a victor's crown, and that was to indicate the crown of victory that he would have over, over sin. Uh, Mark 15:17, and they dressed him in purple, and after weaving a crown of thorns, they put it on him. This is also stated in Matthew 27:29 and John 19:2, as he had victory over sin in terms of uh, ju- being judged for our sins. At any time he could have given up, at any time he could have come down, come down off the cross, but he was sustained on the cross by his dependence upon God the Holy Spirit. And therefore, he had victory. This is a sign of that, and there is a statement of irony here that he receives this kind of crown uh, given as a form of derision by the uh, Roman guards, and yet God, in turn, uses that to signify his great victory over sin and bearing the penalty for our sins on the cross. Other passages also suggests this. For example, in Revelation 3.11, this is related to believers. Jesus is talking to, uh, in the seven letters to the seven churches, and he warns the churches, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have in order that no one take your crown. Again, the idea of perseverance is encouraged here in order that you not lose rewards, that it's very possible for believers to lose their reward, lose everything that they have uh, worked for in terms of spiritual growth. In that sense, work is not something that is negative. This was in the warning to the letter to the church at Sardis. In Revelation 4.4, around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. The crowns here are Stephanos crowns, and this is an indication that the 24 elders uh, would represent church-age believers, same as Revelation 4.10 and then Revelation 14, excuse me, Revelation 14.14 14 also mentions the a golden crown, a golden Stephanos on the head of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Stephanos was the victor's crown, and this is the term that is used of the crowns that believers earn as they advance towards spiritual maturity. The second crown that is mentioned 
is the diadema crown. This is where we get our word in English, diadem. And this is a crown of royalty. This is one that is not necessarily earned, but one that is bestowed upon a king that is his right of, of inheritance, his right of aristocracy. This is a, the crown that we speak of in, uh, Revel, in, in the song that we sang this morning, Crown Him with Many Crowns. Revelation 12:3 is one passage where this is used. Another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great uh, red dragon. This is uh, uh, the kingdom of the Antichrist. A great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems, indicating political power. Revelation 13:11 is another, or 13:1 is another passage. He stood on the seashore, and I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems. This represents political power, political authority. And yet, it is Jesus Christ who is the one who is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Revelation 19.12, And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems, many crowns. This is the basis for the hymn we sang this morning, Crown Him with Many Crowns. He has a name written upon Him which no one knows except Himself. So two two key words are used in, in Greek, and it's important to distinguish between them. Second point, or first point is Stephana, second point, diadema. Third point, each crown, that is, each Stephanos crown that was won by the athlete, also included a monetary reward. He would receive a certain amount of money as part of the prize. It also included the freedom from all taxes. He didn't have to pay any property taxes or income taxes for the rest of his life. I don't know about you, but that might provide a tremendous motivation in order to uh, go through those ten months of rigorous training. No uh, no no taxes. His children were all educated at public expense. A statue of the person would be erected in the uh, town square so that all could see him. The statue would be of him in his most athletic pose. And uh, so this kind of crown is the one that is used by analogy for the greatest honor that God can give to believers. Point number four, to understand the nature of of crowns, we must understand the cultural imagery of the games which lies behind this metaphor. It is in this metaphor the believer is compared to to not only the athlete but also to the soldier. 2 Timothy 2.4 states, No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of of everyday life, so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. And the point, once again, is learning to prioritize, learning to decide what you are after, what your goal in life is, and then excluding from your life all those things that distract you from achieving that end. Same is true as a, of a soldier in active service. This is something that many people in this nation are facing right now as they have joined uh, joined the army, joined the military, joined the reserves. 
many young people joined the reserves because some recruiter sold them that, well, you know, we won't go to war. You can get a great academic scholarship. You can learn a trade. And now all of a sudden they're being called up to active duty to go to war. And, and you'll hear some of these young people say, but, but I didn't sign up to go to war. Well, that's really what you did. You just were uh, allowed yourself to be uh, distra- distracted and deceived by this, by this uh, recruiter. Nevertheless, you are now in active duty. You get called up in the reserves, especially in a time of war, and you cannot let the day-to-day affairs of life distract you. And this is something that I know many of you who have served in active duty especially those of you who are out on submarines for any length of time, you could not be distracted by the things that were going on at home. And your uh, wife would be left at home, and she had to take care of the kids, and she had to balance the checkbook, and she had to take care of all the personal finances and filing income tax and taking care of the cars and all of those details because you had a mission, and everything in life had to be restricted to achieving and and reaching that mission and the objectives of that mission. And so this is the same thing that is true in the Christian life. We have a mission, and that is to glorify God to the maximum. And we achieve that, that mission by growing to spiritual adulthood and spiritual maturity. And so we have to learn to divest ourselves of all those things in life that distract us from achieving that end. Second Timothy 2.5, he switches from the soldier metaphor, the military metaphor, to the athletic metaphor. There he says, And also if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. There are certain rules for the spiritual life. This is not legalism. This is reality. Legalism is the idea that if I follow the rules, God will bless me. In other words, because I do something, I receive God's blessing. That is, in essence, what legalism is. You can have legalism in salvation, where if I do certain things, if I get baptized, if I join a church, if I live a moral life, then God will bless me with salvation. This is what's characteristic of many false religious systems and false systems of Christianity. Legalism in the spiritual life is not saying I'm going to follow a rigorous code of moral conduct in my Christian life. What is le- When it becomes legalistic is when that rigorous code of morality suddenly becomes the means of God's blessing or you begin to impose your standards on somebody else and force them to live according to your code of conduct. Now, the Scriptures clearly define a specific code of conduct. This is outlined in all of the positive imperatives, all the positive mandates of the New Testament, as well as all of the prohibitions. They describe what we are to do, things such as pray without ceasing. We're to love one another as Christ loved the church. We are to study to show ourselves approved unto God. We are to utilize our spiritual gifts. We're to be ambassadors for Christ. We are to give to support local church ministry. All of these things are part of the positive mandates, and there are negative things that we are not to do. We are not to uh, engage in various types of mental attitude sins, sins of the tongue, and overt sins. All of this is part of the negative prohibition. To emphasize those negatives is not legalism. 
The Bible emphasizes that. I've heard people say, well, we live in the age of grace. Right. Grace means that God is going to save us and mature us despite what we've done and who we are and despite our failures. We don't have to earn His favor, but we do have to grow spiritually. And there is a vast difference between grace orientation and licentiousness. There is a tremendous difference between saying, okay, I know that God is going to deal with me in grace, so even though I sinned, I am still going to struggle with that because I know that I am supposed to, according to Romans chapter 6, put to death the deeds of the flesh. That is not an option. But it is up to each individual how he does that. You have one person on one side of the church, and they have particular areas of weakness in more overt sins. They uh, easily succumb to uh, lasciviousness. They easily succumb to sexual sins. They easily succumb to, to alcoholism. They e- easily succumb to various things that's real easy to spot, and you just, the person on the other side of the aisle who uh, doesn't have an area of weakness there, looks over at them and just shakes his head. Can't understand why this person can't get with the program. See, and now they're involved in arrogance, and they're involved in judging, and they're involved in a whole host of mental attitude sins that are not observable. And because they don't easily succumb to the overt sins, everybody looks at them as being more holy than everybody else. When they're not any holier, they're not any more moral, they're just, they're just loaded with mental attitude sins of arrogance and bitterness and envy and jealousy, and this is dominating their whole life. So they don't know how to compete according to the rules either. And it's not for us to look at other people and evaluate how well they're competing. It is between each individual and the Lord. We have to compete according to the rules, and the whole process of the spiritual life and spiritual growth is learning how to do that. You're not, as opposed to uh, the athletic competition, if you have one mistake, you're out. That's where grace comes in. We can make an innumerable amount of mistakes and failings, and as long as... Uh, we're still alive. God still has a plan for our life. God is always going to deal with us in grace. All we have to do is confess our sins and move on. But there is diff- a difference between using confession as a license to sin and using confession as a means of recovery to spur us on so that we can continue to grow and recover from failure. So 2 Timothy 2.5, Paul emphasizes the rules for the spiritual life, that we have to uh, operate according to the protocol mandates of the spiritual life in order to advance to spiritual maturity. That means we have to use all of the stress busters in order to, to face and handle the testings, the temptations in life, in order to grow and advance. If you try to handle these things yourself, if you try to face the testings and temptations of life on your own resources, then there will be failure and a loss of reward. The whole purpose of these testings is to give us the opportunity to apply doctrine so that we can maintain our spiritual growth. Point number six. 
The games in the ancient world were well known, and they developed early in Greece during the 6th century B.C. Under Rome, they had never regained the original glory they had during the uh, golden years of Greece, but they had been restored, and they were becoming more and more popular. Uh, The games primarily focused on uh, track events such as uh, the uh, the racing, as well as, and throwing the javelin, discus throwing, as well as uh, more physical events such as wrestling and boxing. Only freeborn Greeks were eligible to participate, and their ten months of training was called the agonizomai. It was where we get our English word agony and emphasizes the strict regimen, the strict discipline that was necessary in order for them to advance. So Paul is emphasizing in verse 24 simply the fact that, of 9.24, simply the fact that they race for this perishable crown, but we are to run for an imperishable crown. Now, part of what they received, along with what I mentioned earlier under point number under point number three, was that a breach was cut in the city wall to indicate that there was now an athlete of great prowess in the city. And this indicated the fact to anyone who may want to attack the city that, uh, that they had someone of that stature and that uh, ability there so that the wall really wasn't necessary to protect them because there was this tremendous athlete there. When he won, he was uh, given, thrown a great parade, and he rode a chariot through town in that parade. They gave him huge amounts of money, and uh, sometimes they were made generals. Sometimes they were given other high posts in the city government. And it got to the point where the worship of athletes was so extreme that the philosophers complained, not too different from today, where we realize that we pay our uh, professional athletes uh, too much money in proportion to what they do and what they contribute to society. They would take the athlete and they would hire a great poet to write odes to his greatness and they would sing sing songs to his accomplishments. Uh, They uh, would erect a statue of him in public, in the public square, and as I stated earlier, he would be exempt from taxes for the rest of his life. This is the analogy that the Scripture uses in Revelation 22, verse 14, when it talks about entering through the gates of the city. This is what goes to the winner believer as he enters into heaven. He is going to uh, receive these kinds of accolades along with his uh, rewards. Now, Paul goes on to say, this is under point number 7, Paul goes on to say that as believers, we are not to live our lives, our Christian lives, aimlessly, but toward the goal of winning the prize. 1 Corinthians 9.26, he says, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. In ancient Greece, they didn't box like we do today. You think of somebody who's boxing, and you think of uh, throwing jabs and throwing direct punches from the shoulder. In karate, you have a little different style of throwing a punch, just a straight-on punch. 
but in the ancient world it was more like a roundhouse punch and all their punching was done more like just swinging their arm out like a windmill and so if there wasn't anything there for them to connect to it had the idea of someone just standing there and flailing their arms in the air and this is the image that that uh, Paul is using here is when he says, I box in such a way as not beating the air. He is going to box in such a way that he connects with his opponent, that he is going to achieve his goal. Now, there are four crowns. He goes on to say um, that he, make, he buffets his body and makes it his slave so that he can achieve the crown. Now, there are four crowns that are mentioned in the New Testament. Four crowns mentioned in the New Testament. The first is the crown of righteousness. The first is the crown of righteousness mentioned in 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8. Paul says at the end of his life he is in prison, Nero's the emperor, and this is right before he is executed. He was executed by uh, decapitation because he was a Roman citizen. Roman citizens were not crucified. They had a more honorable means of execution through decapitation. He writes to Timothy, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. There's that athletic me- uh, metaphor again. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. This is our first crown. The crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. That is the day of the judgment seat of Christ. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Now that's a key to understanding this crown. It is a crown of righteousness. Now, those who love his appearing is not simply someone who is looking forward to the Lord coming back, but someone who loves it, someone who is motivated by the fact that Jesus Christ is going to come back at any particular moment. This is the idea that John has in 1 John 2.28, that we should not be ashamed at his coming, at his Appearance. We love his appearing. We are motivated by his appearance. This is the believer who is motivated by the fact that Jesus Christ could come back tomorrow. And are we ready? Are we prepared to stand before the judgment seat of Christ? Have we been keeping our spiritual growth a number one priority? Now, when we grow and mature as a believer, we are going to produce righteousness, or actually God the Holy Spirit is going to produce righteousness in our life. The crown of righteousness does not refer to positional righteousness, but it refers to the practical righteousness or experiential righteousness that is developed in the believer's life through the application of doctrine and spiritual growth. This is what we call divine good produced in the believer's life which develops capacity for life and capacity for happiness both now and in eternity. As the believer advances towards spiritual maturity, he's going to spend more and more time in fellowship. He's going to spend more and more time being filled by means of the Holy Spirit. He's going to be applying doctrine. And as a result of this, the Holy Spirit produces in the believer 
production righteousness. This is what is stated in Ephesians 5.9. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Now, that is the translation in the New American Standard based on the text that they use. However, the majority text and the Byzantine text, which underlines the King James Version, New King James Version, there's a textual problem here. And uh, the textual variant is on the word light. In the majority text, it's not the fruit of the light, it's the fruit of the Spirit. The result is pretty much the same thing in terms of the meaning. We're walking in the light, and that's the, and the same as walking by means of the Spirit. And the fruit of the light, the fruit of the Spirit, actually, consists in what? Goodness and righteousness and truth. So the Holy Spirit produces righteousness in the believer as he matures. And the result of this, if you reach spiritual maturity, is you receive the crown of righteousness. The second crown is the crown of life. This is described in Revelation 2, verse 10. Do not fear any of those, which, any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. They're going to go through overt persecution and hostility for their faith. That you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. James 1.12 also mentions this. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. That is testing. That's common in both verses. Who endures testing, for when he has been approved, dokimos, when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Once again, loving the Lord, personal love for God the Father is characteristic of the mature believer. You don't learn to love the Lord until you have a certain amount of doctrine in your soul. Love develops and love grows, but it is not the characteristic of the baby believer or the immature believer. It is the characteristic of the mature believer. Blessed is the man who endures testing. That is, that in the midst of testing, you're going to use the ten problem-solving devices, the stress busters, to handle the testing. You're going to stay in fellowship. You're going to focus on the Lord. And as a result of endurance and testing, you will receive the crown of life. This is related to eternal life. So often we have seen in our study in First John, in the second hour, that... <coughs> There is a quality of life associated with the believer who stays in fellowship. 1 John 3.15 made this clear. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. Now, that would be a believer because uh, if it's not a believer, then the other believer isn't a brother. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And the point that John is making is this quality of life that we are promised, that this extra capacity for, for life, that will be ours in the eternal state comes as a result of spiritual growth which is the, based on abiding in Christ. If you're not abiding in Him, you're operating in carnality with mental attitude sins such as hatred and envy, uh, bitterness, jealousy. All of this destroys your spiritual life. So the believers... This crown of life is related to the believer's success at enduring adversity and testing without yielding to temptation. And in some cases, this may involve persecution, physical persecution, and even martyrdom. This was true of many of the apostles. 
James was beheaded in Jerusalem in A.D. 44. Philip was cruelly whipped prior to being crucified. Matthew was killed by the sword in Parthia in A.D. 60. James the Less was thrown from a pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem and then beaten to death on the ground. Andrew was crucified on a cross for three days, during which time he witnessed to all who came to look at him. Peter was first whipped and then crucified upside down. He did not deem himself worthy to be crucified right side up as his Lord was. Thomas was thrust through with a spear in India. Jude was crucified in A.D. 72. Uh, Bartholomew was beaten to death with clubs. John was uh, initially condemned to a cauldron of boiling oil, and then that was commuted, and he was exiled to the island of Patmos where he died. Paul was beheaded in Rome by Nero. Barnabas was stoned to death by Jews in Thessalonica. Mark was dragged through the streets of Alexandria by his feet and then burned to death the following day. Luke was hanged on an olive tree in Greece, and Matthias was stoned and then beheaded. Those who persevere despite persecution will receive the crown of life. Then the third crown is the crown of glory. This crown is awarded to pastors who faithfully study and communicate uh, Bible doctrine to their congregation. Pastor-teacher must be faithful in his preparation for the ministry. This is where so many men fail today is that they get too limited in education. They think that they can go from the pew to the pulpit without going through a rigorous course of training. We, we think that just because we can get fast food and we can get microwave dinners, that somehow this, this sense of, of, of getting something quickly without going through the long process applies to everything in life. There's some things in life you can't hurry. You can't hurry spiritual growth. You can't hurry. You can't speed up your, your intake of doctrine and your understanding of the scriptures. It takes time to develop an understanding of the Scripture. So a pastor-teacher must be faithful in his preparation for the ministry. And I would go so far as to say that if you uh, are going to be a pastor-teacher, then you need to take the time to go to seminary somewhere for your training. Do not think that just because some seminary uh, may not agree with all the positions you uh, agree with or your church agrees with, that you somehow shouldn't go. You need to go. A pastor should go through seminary training, and he will be sharpened by being in a context of people he may not always agree with, because then he will learn to think. And the number one thing a pastor has to be able to do other than, other than his own spiritual life is to think, and to think critically, and to think analytically. And you don't learn to do that just by sitting in the same church, same congregation, where everybody around you always agrees with you. You learn to do that in a position where there are others that may disagree with you to sharpen your ability to think and to understand things. And a pastor who has not been through that formal process probably isn't worth much. And uh, there are those I know that can't go through that process, and they you have to do the best you can. There are some some uh, uh, programs that are available today through correspondence, and that's, that's good. But if you can't do that, then you need to be faithful in your ongoing study of the Scripture and being involved in some of the pastor's conference and st- ongoing study conferences that are often held. 
and we see these uh, around the country. There's a number of groups that you can go to. There's a conservative theological society, the National Teaching Pastors Conference, which is held at Schaefer Seminary every year in mid-March. There are uh, various other studies, uh, things that one can go to where his skills are sharpened and developed. And so pastors should do that. A pastor who won't go to those is a pastor who has no humility and no teachability and is frankly scared to death that he might run into some information that he can't handle. And they're nothing more than cowards, and they don't belong in the pulpit. A pastor must be faithful in his own spiritual growth and his own spiritual advance. His congregation will never advance beyond his own uh, spiritual growth and his own spiritual uh, life. Uh, and finally, a pastor teacher must be faithful to feed his congregation and to give them solid food and that they may grow from that. 1 Peter 5.1 Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd, that is to pastor, that's the verb, poimano, Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples of the flock. That's paying attention to your own spiritual life. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And then the fourth crown and the last crown is the crown that is the subject of our passage in 1 Corinthians 9, and that is the winner's crown, the crown of the person who has mastered himself. You could call it the crown of self-mastery, the crown of self-discipline. I call it the winner's crown because it is the one who uh, wins the race and faithfully runs the race, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning and to be challenged with the motivation of our future reward, our future destiny uh, to rule and reign with you. Right now we are in preparation. We are in training. How well we do will be determined at the judgment seat of Christ and the rewards and the privileges that we are given at the judgment seat of Christ will determine our place, our position for eternity. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would not be distracted by the message this morning, which is to believers. If you are not a believer, not saved, the issue is not your diligence in the spiritual life. The issue is receiving a spiritual life. There is a difference between something you, that you are rewarded for and something that you are given. And eternal salvation is a free gift. All you have to do is trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. He died on the cross for your sins. You did nothing to earn it or deserve it. You simply accept it as a gift. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now, Father, we pray that uh, you would challenge us by the things that we have studied this morning, that we may pursue that high calling that we have as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ to glorify you to the maximum in everything that we do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.